Welcome to episode 119 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today we are back for part two with Ed Morellis. Ed Morellis served in the FBI for 25 years. During his career, he worked as a street agent, supervisor, and manager in a wide range of investigative and administrative areas, as well as an undercover agent in hundreds of high-level, high-risk narcotics and criminal and national security investigations. In this episode, he reviews the April 11, 1986 fatal FBI Miami shootout, where, during the pursuit of two extremely dangerous criminals, two special agents, Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove, were killed, and others, including Ed Morellis, were wounded. Although severely injured, Ed Morellis fired his shotgun one-handed to prevent the subjects from escaping, then charged the subjects fatally wounding both. His heroic actions prevented further injury to his fellow agents and innocent citizens. He has received numerous awards and commendations honoring him for his heroism and bravery that day. He is the author of FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau, his story of survival and the fight to save the lives of his brother agents on that fateful day. The True Crime book is available exclusively on his website, edmorellis.com. I am thrilled to present this second part of this episode to you. I know I left you with a cliffhanger last week. I dedicate this episode to Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove for their bravery and dedication to duty on April 11th, 1986. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to invite you to join my reader team, where once a month I send out a digest of the previous month's podcast episodes, and I also keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. In the June issue, I write about the new FBI TV series by Dick Wolf the creator of Law and & Order, and I mentioned that I'm considering producing a new podcast in the fall where I bring together a panel of retired agents to review the new FBI show. What do you think about that? To join my reader team, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up. When you sign up, you'll get a copy of the FBI Reading Resource. The FBI Reading Resource is a list of books about the FBI, crime fiction, true crime, and memoir, written by some of the agents who've appeared on this podcast. Of course, Ed Morales' book is there, as well as my books. Thank you. Here's the show. The morning of April 11th, you know, to, to me, was a, a, a typical... Um, April morning in Miami it was gorgeous, beautiful skies, uh, cool breeze off the ocean, and uh, you know I was on my way to work, you know, <laughs> doing what I consider to be the greatest job in the world, you know. So uh, to me it was just a regular day, you know. So um, 
and, you know, we, we had a surveillance going on that morning, but, you know, just a regular day, you know, otherwise. So get to the office and, you know, the, the whole squad's here. Everybody's running around, you know, looking for gear, you know, looking for ammunition and different stuff, you know, body armor, raid jackets. I mean, we had all, all our equipment, you know, the regular equipment that we were issued at the time. So I went in and grabbed my shotgun, um, you know, um, opened it up, inspected it, make sure it was functional and the ammunition was there. So then I'm looking around and I, I, uh, everybody was teamed up by that time, you know, and I, John Handler and I were the only ones that hadn't been teamed up. So we hooked up and he said he would drive. I said, sure. I mean, I, I don't mind being chauffeured around, you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, we, we quick jumped in, in his car, you know, we had all our gear and, um, we make our way down to South Miami. Now, uh, the reason that everybody was hectic was because, you know, like any other rush hour in, in a big city, you know, I mean, there's a lot of traffic. And we had uh, we had to drive from uh, the Miami office, which was at 100, no, I'm sorry, which was at 38th Street and Biscayne Boulevard, all the way to 148th Street and South, South Dixie Highway, which, you know, as the crow flies, is about 30 miles, but... As the car drives, it's probably more like 40, 45 miles, you know, with traffic and and uh, bends in the road and so on and so forth. So, you know, we wanted to make sure we made the meeting on time, you know. So uh, that's what that's what was, that's what the urgency was, you know. So so we we get down there, you know, uh, about eight thirty, eight forty five, and uh, most of the guys were there by by that time, you know. So uh, once everybody was there, Gordon. Thanked everybody for showing up on, on such short notice, you know, and then he turned over the uh, briefing to, to Ben Grogan. And um, Ben Grogan was teamed up with Jerry Dove at that time. They were both uh, SWAT guys. And uh, um, I think uh, Ben had taken Jerry under his uh, his wing as, as a mentor, you know, to you know to get him up to up to uh, C1 standards. You know, every, all of us had a mentor of some kind, you know, somewhere, you know, in, in, on the squad, you know, so. So Ben Ben starts giving us a briefing about you know the the steak and ale the Winn Dixie you know the um, uh, armored truck robberies at 136th Street and, and uh, South Dixie Highway, and uh, he gave out the description of the stolen Monte Carlo, how it had been used in the last robbery without even changing the tag, and uh, the white pickup truck, and uh, we got some some residual. Uh, information about missing uh, persons, about two missing older older people, and their cars had been stolen, you know, so and not recovered, you know. So we had, you know, two other potential getaway cars, you know, but we weren't a hundred percent sure. But they threw the information out there just in case, uh, you know, the, uh, the you know those cars and or license plates showed up. So you know, everybody, you know, was was uh, was studious making notes and uh, some of us uh, got uh, copies of the uh, the police composites you know about the uh, about how the uh, the white uh, the white robbers looked you know and uh, you know I was pretty confident you know I mean it's like 14 agents you know we had all the firepower that we we were uh, legally allowed to carry by the bureau you know at the time you know the the go-to sidearm was a revolver and uh, the go-to long weapon was a shotgun, you know. So I had a shotgun, I had a revolver. Additionally, we had five SWAT agents on the squad. And, um, you know, I, I felt very comfortable with that. Uh, one SWAT agent, uh, uh, Bobby Ross, had an M16 fully auto uh, rifle. Terry Nelson, another SWAT agent, had um, a an MP5 machine gun that's 
God, I forget what MP, uh, MP5, uh, some German make. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, some German make machine gun, you know, with 30 round magazines. It's a nine, nine millimeter caliber. And then, um, the, all five SWAT agents were armed with, uh, high capacity pistols as opposed to revolvers. Since uh, I was not a SWAT agent, I could only I was only authorized to carry um, the uh, the revolver. So um, in that regard, you know, it's like hey, you know, uh, I carried everything I was legally allowed to carry. You know, so you know, some people say, well, you were outgunned. I said, well, <laughs> outgunned is uh, is is possible, but again, you know, legally I was only allowed to carry a revolver. So you know, you 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 can. You can try to split hairs, but you know it is what it is, you know. So, but anyway, so uh, we split the uh, the team up. You know, we were we had four uh, four locations where we were going to set up and be in a position to respond to um, to uh, potential uh, robberies at other locations. I was set up at the. Uh, I was told to go to the Professional Savings Bank located at 130. 30th Street and South Dixie Highway. There were three agents there, myself, John Hanlon, and, uh, and Steve Warner. The second location was the, the Barnett Bank and Continental Bank location at 136th Street in South Dixie. There were five agents there. Uh, the supervisor, Gordon McNeil, Terry Nelson, Ben Grogan, Jerry Dove, and Richard Manowski. Okay, they were they were at that location because that that had been robbed twice. Two armored trucks had been robbed at, at that location, and it was a big parking lot, uh, like a um, shopping center parking lot. So it wasn't just a smaller area, you know. That's why we needed five agents there because it was a huge shopping center, you know. So the third location was the Florida Bank, located at 148th Street in South Dixie, which is around the area where we had our meeting. There were three three agents assigned to that location, uh, Gilbert Orantia, Ron Reisner, and uh, Bobby Ross. The fourth location was uh, at 184th Street and South Dixie Highway. And the three Homestead agents, the resident agents from uh, Homestead, had uh, volunteered to help us, and they were assigned to, to that uh, location, 84th Street and um, in South Dixie, because, as it turns out, you know, that was in their territory, you know, that was part of the Homestead RA. So, you know, everybody got their assignments, you know, everybody, you know, starts breaking up in the meeting, you know, we had everything, we, all the information we, 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 that was available. The, uh, again, the equipment and gear that we were authorized to carry, you know, everybody had it, you know, so, um, you know, at that point, you know, everybody starts breaking, you know, breaking up. We start teasing each other, you know, guys, you know how guys are. They they start, you know, saying, hey, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't shoot yourself accidentally or, you know, hey, what are you, are you wearing your wife's sweater or what? You know, so <laughs> typical, you know, alpha male razzing, you know, that goes on, you know. So it was a, a pretty, you know, routine day, you know, so we uh we broke up and uh, John Hanlon and I start driving up to uh, our location you know uh at uh, 130th street Steve Warner uh, called out uh, on the radio to us and said hey i, I need to uh, i need to uh get some gas you know i need to gas up my car so he said i'll be uh, out of service for for a few minutes you know so we said okay so um we uh went to to 130th street and uh, you know scoped out the uh, the bank and 
you know, the parking lot, how many entrances to the bank, how many entrances to the parking lot, you know, where where's a good, you know, area to sit and surveil the bank without being noticed, you know, that type of stuff, you know. So then um, uh, Steve Warner comes back on the air and um, said, hey, uh, where are you guys? We told him we're at the bank, you know, so uh, we start kicking ideas around, you know, and then somebody on the uh, on the on the general uh, channel said, "Hey, has anybody checked on the uh, delivery schedules for armored trucks?" You know, and somebody said, "No, nah, you know, it's kind of a, you know, we we didn't know what what banks we were going to be uh, surveying, you know, so you know that kind of it was held in on the back burner, you know, so it was suggested that individual agents at at the uh, at the different locations contact the bank managers in their area to find out." Um, if they if they knew what the uh, armored truck delivery schedule was going to be for for their specific bank, you know. So, as it turns out, uh, <clears throat> Steve Warner said, "Hey, I'll check I'll check our bank, you know, the bank that we were set up on." And uh, we said, "Sure, you know what the heck, you know." I mean, he you know he has a pretty good rapport, you know, with all the bank uh, the different bank managers in the county. You know, so he's the one that that went to the professional savings bank to, you know, to inquire. You know, as it turns out, that bank didn't open till 9.30. So when he went in to ask, you know, the bank was still closed. And uh, he knocked on the door. He got the attention of, um, you know, some tellers. And the teller called the uh, the manager. And as luck would have it, you know, I mean, you, you get some strange guy knocking on, on your bank door, you know, hey, how are you? You know, <laughs> yeah, I know you're not open, but can I, know I come you're not in? open. Yeah. Can you open the door? <laughs> can you open the door for me? <laughs> but I mean, he showed him his uh, his identification, his FBI credentials and his badge, you know, and he's and of course, you know, he's not wearing a, a suit and tie, you know, because we're all on surveillance. You know, we were all kind of we call it dressed down. You know, we dressed down. You know, so he was wearing a polo shirt and, and some jeans or something like that, you know. so, And he said, hey, I'm Steve Warner. I'm with the FBI. We're doing a surveillance in the area, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, can you tell me when your armored truck deliveries are going to be scheduled? And uh, the bank manager proceeded to tell him to pound sand, you know. <laughs> she, she didn't know why he was there and what he wanted, you know, and this and that, you know. So he said, hey, well, call my office, you know, they'll verify who I am, you know, so... She said, fine, go away. So he went back in the car, you know, jumped in, you know, and, um, and um, you know, that was that, you know. So about ten, five, ten minutes later, you know, the office calls down and says, hey, uh, I forget what his unit number was, uh, you know, Steve, you know, the bank teller, the bank manager uh, from the, uh, the bank called to verify your employment. We told him that uh, you are, in fact, employed. As an FBI agent, you know, so uh, he, uh, the uh, radio operator told Steve, said, hey, the bank manager will talk to you now. You know, she'll she'll tell you what you need to know. So uh, Steve said, okay, I'll be there in a few minutes, you know. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that that is uh, what I call one of the dominoes, you know, in, the, in fate, in, uh, you know, the cosmic domino falling. Steve Warner had gone to the bank and try to get information that he was rejected, and then he was told to come back to the bank. Okay, that would have a, a, a severe impact on the, on the uh, shootout. In two other locations, um, at 136th Street, Terry Nelson, the the agent with the uh, submachine gun, 
uh, tells Gordon McNeil, he said, Gordon, I, I need to run to the bathroom. You know, he didn't say it like that. He said, Gordon, I need to make a library stop. You know, so Gordon said, okay, fine, go, you know. So he goes to the bathroom, and then at 148th Street, okay, uh, Bob Ross tells his team, hey, guys, uh, I need to make a, a, a pit stop here at this gas station. And, uh, again, you know, everybody knew it was like, hey, he had to go to the bathroom, you know. So uh, Bob Ross was armed with the M16, you know, the, the full auto M16, you know. So I call that three cosmic dominoes falling and tipping each other over. Okay, Steve Warner is told to go back to the bank. Bobby Bobby Ross goes to the bathroom, and Terry Nelson goes to the bathroom. Again, three separate locations on the um, surveillance lineup, you know, and every one of these guys did, did the uh, the team work uh, uh, scenario. He told everybody where he was going and, you know, that he would be back in a couple of minutes. So, I mean, in that regard, I mean, it's just, I mean, normal. People have to go to the bathroom, you know, so... <clears throat> so they went to the bathroom. As soon as Steve Warner calls out on the radio, he said, uh, hey, uh, Jake, Ed, I'm going to be 10-7, which means I'm going to be off the air at the bank to talk to the bank manager. And we said, okay, no problems. He goes off the air, and like within 10 seconds of him going off the air, we hear Ben Grogan on the radio call out saying, uh, guys, he said, attention all units, we're behind a black Monte Carlo, Florida tag, NTJ891. And I almost dropped my teeth. Okay. Chills just went through my body. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, I, I, I get, I get chills every time I hear that, that, that tag, you know, it's like NTJ891. And I, you know, the first thought I had was like, I can't believe these yo-yos didn't change the tag on the car. Cause in the, in the previous three weeks, the, the customs guy had seen the tag. I mean, you know, we don't know whether that, like I said, whether they were that brazen or that stupid. You know, I mean, they weren't stupid men, but I mean, you, you gotta ask yourself, what the heck was their game, you know? So, uh, anyway. I mean, it was like electricity coming across the air. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I don't believe this, okay? And uh, I'm thinking, God, you know, Steve just went in the bank, you know? It's like, so when Ben calls out, somebody asks, what's your location? We were at 130th Street, the northernmost part of the surveillance. When they gave us their location, he said, we're at 124th Street. So they were already like four or five blocks north of us. And I didn't understand, you know, how they could be that far ahead, of, uh, that far north of us without them notifying anybody, if you follow what I mean. You know, they, they should have notified somebody that, hey, listen, you know, we're moving, because they were at 136th Street, okay? And then all of a sudden, they're at 124th. Okay, that's a difference of 12 blocks, okay? And, and it wasn't... Until I you know I started asking and 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 looking and listening to the uh, radio recordings and stuff like that. What happened? And this is my speculation. You know, they must have been on surveillance at 136th Street, 
Okay, and again, I told you that the two the two banks had been hit before. You know, armored trucks and or uh, bank robbers. We're looking for a black Monte Carlo, a black car. Okay, and my speculation is that they were on surveillance. They saw the black car pull into the the parking lot of the the banks or the shopping center, and rather than cause a big commotion by saying, hey, there's a black car here, there's a black car here, they've probably observed the car in the parking lot, okay? And, again, speculation on my part, the two banks that had been robbed in the previous month or two had hired an off-duty metro police unit to sit in front of their banks as extra security. Okay, so there's a marked unit parked in front of the bank. Okay, so speculation on my part is that they must have, um, they, the the two uh, guys in the stolen Monte Carlo must have seen the marked unit and said, bam, this is no good. <laughs> you know, we don't want to rob a bank with a cop car and a cop sitting in front of the bank. You know, that's just automatically going to cause problems, you know. So speculation is that they saw the, the, uh, the marked unit, so they drove around the bank and then go left the parking lot, at which point Ben and Jerry had seen this, okay, that they, uh, based on the, on, the, on the route of travel, the car must have exited the parking lot and started driving north on South Dixie Highway. Instead of causing a big commotion, you know, I spe- speculate that, uh, <clears throat> that Ben and Jerry played catch-up with the black car, okay? They were trying to catch up you know, to see if they could look, get a good look at the tag before they made any announcements, okay? Because that's the only way I can imagine, because there were two, two highly trained professionals, both SWAT guys. I mean, they're, they're used to the team tactics and this and that and the other, you know, everything, you know? And, and Ben was a 23-year veteran, you know? How could they go from 136th Street to 124th, okay? And, and that, this explains it, okay? They must have, Tried to play catch up with the uh, the black car, the black. Uh, they they couldn't verify what it was until they got up close, uh, until they caught up with it at 124th Street. Okay, at that point, when they verified that it was the black Monte Carlo and verified that it was a stolen tag, they called out on the radio and said, "Attention, all units, we're behind the black Monte Carlo Florida tag NTJA91." That's the only explanation that I can come up with for them. You know being out of position by 12 blocks, you know, which is perfect because, I mean, you know, at least they, they, they had, we had them, you know, we, we had them in, in the hand. So instantly John, Jake Hanlon whips the car, you know, into, into drive and whips up, um, US one, you know, the South Dixie highway. It was still, it was about nine twenty-five somewhere in that time frame, And it was still kind of late rush hour. And, uh, we, we, you know, we're weaving and bobbing through traffic, you know, because we don't know where they are because the last, uh, location was 124th Street. We're weaving and bobbing, you know, and, and Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove are still calling out locations, cross streets, and so on and so forth. And, uh, <clears throat> Gordon tells, uh, the, the, uh, Homestead guys, he says, hey, make sure you call Metro and tell them what's going on. Okay, so again, that goes back to my pet peeve, you know, saying, hey, 
misinformation out there that we, you know, we we never notified Metro. That's the first thing he said. Make sure you call Metro. We want a marked unit with us when we do a car stop. I mean, all bases were covered there, you know. So he's uh, uh, the Homestead uh, agents are um, are. Uh, you know, trying to get a location, they're calling in Metro and 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 back and forth, and and we're playing catch up. Ben is surveilling, trying not to be seen. You know, so this goes on for about four minutes. Okay, we caught up with Ben Grogan at 117th Street. Okay, so they had gone from 124th to 117th, which is seven blocks before we caught them. Are the robbers driving at normal speed, or are they right, going fast? Right, right. You know, it was it was all very normal, and uh, you know, because the, the robbers didn't know that they were being surveilled at that point in time. They were driving with the flow of traffic. Okay, it just happened that traffic was kind of heavy. So we caught up with them at 117th. We were in a position to 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 see Ben's car uh, directly behind the robbers. And the robbers made a right turn onto 117th Street. Okay, at that point, everything's still great. So Ben makes the right turn. We make the right turn behind Ben. You know, things are things are going going great. You know, I mean, everything's good. You know, it, all the all the units are responding northbound. You know, um, the Homestead RA guys are trying to to uh, vector in Metro. The wheels started to fall off when um, the Bank robbery, the stolen car, and and the two guys in it, the, the robbers. Uh, when we got to uh, 117th Street and 81st Avenue, okay, we came to a stop sign, and then they had a decision, left or right. Okay, so they went right. They went southbound. At that point, all our cover, the other cover vehicles, in other words, all the other traffic, disappeared. We're on a. We went from a. a, a, a a business thoroughfare to a residential street. Okay, so in other words, we went, we went from 200 cars <laughs> to three cars. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the bad guys, uh, Ben and Jerry's car, and and John Hanlon's and my car. So at that point in time, you know, they probably looked in the mirror and said, "What the heck are these two sedans behind us?" You know, real close. They went from normal traffic, normal uh, speeds to slow. They went so you're real sticking sl- out like a sore thumb now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. At that point, you know, there is no cover. You know, so they they said, "Well, this is odd." So they slowed down from. You know, we were traveling at at one time. You know, with within the rush hour traffic, thirty. You know, thirty five miles an hour. On the residential street, we went down to like 15 miles an hour. I mean, there, I mean, there's no other traffic there. They, they didn't have to go 15 miles an hour. They could have gone 25, 30 miles an hour, but they slowed down to around 15. So, I mean, it's like, whoa, you know. So they proceed southbound to the next intersection, which is a, a T. They, they have, a, again, a decision to make. They go left or right at 120th Street. So they went right again. Okay, so they turned right on 120th Street, and, and you know, you know, from your old days in surveillance, you know, training and stuff. How do you find out if somebody's following you? Make three left turns or three right turns, okay? And if the person behind you stays behind you for three consecutive turns, you know you're being followed, you know. So they made 
they made three right turns, right on 117th, right on 81st, and then a right on 120th. So at that point, you know, by that time, Richard Manalzi had caught up to us, and he was behind us. Okay, so it was the bad guys and three sedans behind them, and they were going 15 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, and the sedans weren't moving. You know, they were directly behind them. So at that point, you and, know... And uh, that was intentional, I take it, because some oh, surveillance, you want to do a loose surveillance, but you're trying to arrest them, so that close surveillance is on purpose. Oh, exactly, exactly. This is the first time we had actually gotten eyes on, okay? And I, again, uh, Jerry, I can't tell you this with any certainty, but I can tell you with 100% certainty. <laughs> there was like a mental, it. there was a mental electricity going on, okay? We were maintaining radio discipline. The only people talking were Ben Grogan or Jerry Dove, the eyes. They had the eyes on the subject. Gordon McNeil, the supervisor, when he had to make a clarification or ask for information. And the Homestead guys looking for a vector for the, so he could relay it to the, to the Metro PD. Okay. Otherwise, everybody was silent. Nobody was interrupting. Nobody was stepping on, you know, anybody's transmission. But there was an electrical communication. The, the communication was, these guys are not going to get away. That's, I mean, that's the, I talked to everybody and it was like telepathically communicated or some electrical system, you know, uh, you know, in, in the human system, you know, that, that communicates, uh, you know, uh, ESP <laughs> thoughts or whatever. I knew that we were not going to let these guys get away that day. There was no way, okay? Because this is the first time we had eyes on these guys. We were not about to let them escape, okay? Not after they killed three or four people and, and shot up how many other people. And, you know, they were vicious, vicious guys. So I, my wheels start turning, and, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, my biggest concern is if they're we're heading westbound now. If they had continued westbound, they would have they would have completed a circle, a, a complete circle around a block. And I'm thinking, well, at that point, you know, they're going to be out back out to uh, South Dixie Highway with all that traffic. My my concern was a high speed chase uh, in, in a, a you know a high congested area, you know. And I'm thinking these guys are so vicious that they would you know easily use the traffic you know, play bumper cars with the traffic or and or shoot innocent civilians in their cars to cover their escape. I mean, I I really had nightmare thoughts about that. I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know. And then miracle of miracles, instead of running straight out to South Dixie Highway, they made a left turn onto 82nd Avenue. And I'm thinking, you know, again, you know, these thoughts come to you, weird, you know, intrusive thoughts. Hallelujah. I'm thinking, you know, we're not going into the high traffic area. We're going into a, a secondary, a second residential street. At that point, you know, I broke radio silence, you know, and I called out and you know, I said, hey, I said, Ben, we're right behind you, babe. If you want to do it, let's do it. You know, because I was, you know, getting a little bit concerned that, you know, these guys are going to start, you know, speeding away, you know. So what everybody was waiting for was for Metro to, to help us. Okay, MART units, you know, that, that 
you know, that, that's, that's helpful in, in, in any car stop situation. You know, not that we couldn't do a car stop, but you know, it's like, hey, you know, you, 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 you do a car stop in an unmarked car, people can say, well, I thought I was being carjacked, or, you know, I thought they were robbers, or, you know, any, any excuse, you know, by, uh, by a criminal, you know, we're, we're trying to, trying to, to block, you know, the excuse avenue, you know, so. But when he when he turned south on 82nd, at that point in time, Ben decided, hey, this is getting out of control. You know, we need to do it now. So he said, felony car stop, let's do it over the radio. And I'm thinking, okay, we, we've got this, you know. And the last location that Ben called out to the Homestead agents was 120th Street and South Dixie Highway. Okay, <clears throat> not quite an accurate location. We were one block east and then we're heading south on 82nd Avenue, though. So we ended up like two or three blocks south of the last location that, that uh, the Homestead guys had. So they, they told Metro, we're at 120th Street and South Dixie Highway. Okay, that was the last broadcast location that Ben threw out. And, uh, I, I didn't know it. I mean, I was kind of busy you know, <laughs> trying to formulate a car stop, you know. When Ben said, felony car stop, let's do it. Jerry threw the uh, the little bubble light on the dash and and plugged it in and and it started circulating you know started flashing blue and uh, Ben turned on the uh, the siren you know and and uh, as soon as he did that you know as soon as the siren hit both uh, passengers in the in the stolen Monte Carlo jumped and they both turned to look back at the uh, at Ben's car at that point I think you know they they suspected they were being surveilled you know but they all at when Ben turned on the siren they it was verified okay the cops are here they didn't know whether it was metro or or uh, postal service or what you know but they knew cops were there so uh, at that point you know you know Ben pulls out of line and tries to speed past them to block their forward uh, motion okay again I I spoke uh, last week about uh uh, there's two types of car stops, compliant and non-compliant. Okay, so Ben was trying to, to short-circuit, you know, the uh, the potential for a non-compliant stop. Okay, so he, he actually pulled out and actually drove in front of the stolen Monte Carlo, at which point the stolen Monte Carlo, I could hear the, uh, the uh, revolutions per minute, the RPMs, of the motor, I mean, they just stepped on the gas, and I mean, I mean, everybody was was stepping on the gas. Ben, Dolan Monte Carlo, and Jake was stepping on the gas. You know, trying to, to he moved his car to the left, also trying to force them off to the right side of the road. Ben was actually got ahead of them, trying to slow them down to keep them from going forward. And Richard Manauzi, who was the third vehicle in line, pulled up behind them, so we had them pinned on the front, the left side and the the rear trying to force them off to the right there was a uh, a cement wall uh, the rear part of a shopping center on the right hand side of the road you know so we said hey that's a perfect spot the backdrop is a, a solid cement wall you know in case you know we have to fire we'll be shooting you know at a at a blank wall you know so i mean the best laid plans you know <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Again, I told you, in a car stop, the the the, uh, the bad guys get a vote, okay? Right. And their vote was, nope, you're not going to stop us, you know. So <laughs> they started ramming, you know, the the back of uh, a bench car. They started hard ramming my car. I mean, I was actually side by side with the uh, the driver. Uh, you know, I was on the passenger side of our car, 
and uh, the driver, who was later identified as Maddox, was, you know, on, on the uh, driving. Okay, and I could actually, I mean, we were, we were so close, I could, if our windows had been rolled down, I could have reached out and touched the driver. You know, but as it turned out, you know, our windows, all windows were, were rolled up, you know, because it was humid, you know, and we had the A.C. going. And this is all taking place in a residential area. Correct, correct. And we're speeding down the road, you know. I mean, it, 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 my description, you know, and, and, and my recollection, it, it seems like it was like a half an hour. But in reality, it probably took like 10 seconds, okay? I mean, that's just what happens, you know, when, when you're, your fight or flight syndrome hits, you know, time, you get time distortions and time slows down and, and, and tunnel vision and stuff like that, you know, so, so we're trying to ram them to the right, okay, and Ben's trying to block them forward. And I've got the shotgun loaded between my legs and I'm trying to bring the shotgun up to point it at the driver, but you know, with the you know, since I'm next to the passenger door in the window, there's no way that I could bring the shotgun up, you know. And uh, if if I had had the presence of mind, I should have just you know let go of the shotgun and pulled pulled my revolver up and stuck it, you know, at, and pointed it at the at the driver. The biggest question I have is I don't know what I would have done if I had pointed it at the driver because they had not conducted or, or, or shown any uh, deadly force intent on, the, on their part. So, again, that's, uh, that goes back to the, uh, the you know, the uh, um, deadly force policy. Uh, you know, what, the, about the yeah. fact, what about the fact that you had known that they had used deadly force prior to this? Well, see, that, that, that's the problem, Jerry. You know, I mean, I knew, and I was, and, and I, I was debating. You know, it's kind of like Jeopardy. I'll take deadly force for 200, Alex. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, deadly force. Okay, if these guys have killed three people in the past, they've shot, you know, another 10, you know, they've stolen cars, and, you know, right now they're ramming your car with their car. Do you have the right to shoot them? You know? Right, because what's the policy? You have the right to shoot if your life is in danger or if you believe other people's life Correct. is in danger. But it Correct. has to be immediate. Correct, exactly. You know, so I was, I mean, I was torn. I was like, you know, yes, no, yes, no. You know, luckily for me, you know, I mean, it was a jump ball, you know, and, and I, um, I didn't have to make that decision. You know what happened? What? I got, I had tunnel vision and I was, I had, uh, my, my vision had narrowed right down to the driver. I never saw the passenger, but based on Manowski's testimony, the passenger who was obviously on the other side of the driver, he was blocked, partly partly blocked from my vision. Right. And um, I had tunnel vision, you know, so I never saw the passenger. He raised a long barrel weapon up and leaned forward so that he could aim in front of his uh, partner. And what I never saw and Richard Manowski saw, because he was behind the stolen car, was... He's, he's in the third car. He's in the third car. The passenger, who uh, was later identified as Platt, was aiming an assault rifle at my head. Okay, well, I'm, you know, debating shoot, don't shoot, deadly force policy, you know, and I'm, I'm still trying to bring the shotgun up. Okay, Manowski did a superb job, okay, because I never saw, you know, the rifle, never saw the shooter or the potential shooter. He sees it and he takes, he speeds up his car 
which is big. He had the biggest car out there. It was like a big Impala uh, type car or something like that. I forget what it was. But he rammed the stolen car from behind. He just like speeds it up, you know, puts the RPMs to the floor and just speeds it up and rams the stolen car from behind. And that jostled the passengers on the inside. He hit them so hard that it actually propelled the the stolen car forward. And John and I were, you know, were, were using our car to, to put, try to push them to the right. Okay, and of course they were fighting us back, you know, pushing their car, the stolen car, to the left. So when Manazi hits the car, the stolen car from the back, it slingshotted them forward. And all resistance stopped on our car and on their car. So what ended up happening is we slingshotted because Jake was pushing and turning the wheels to the right, trying to push the car off to the right, and they were pushing to the left, aiming their wheels to the left. So when, when all resistance stopped, we know we were propelled to the right, and they were propelled to the left. Okay, We ended up crashing into a tree and, and a cement wall, and they ended up, they had more room. They ended up uh, kind of like skidding off to the left, you know, and they almost... Um, crashed into into a couple of trees but they managed to salvage it so they they, they're skidding 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 and then they come back and they make a total complete u-turn so now they're going back north on 82nd avenue ben and jerry are in front they see what's going on they make a u-turn and start coming back john and i are, are shaken up when we crashed uh up against against the wall i know i was i mean because we hit pretty hard we were going about 30 35, 40 miles an hour when we hit the wall. And I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, you know, because I thought it would restrict my movements, you know. So uh, I'm so very lucky I didn't hurt myself when I, when I smashed up to the windshield. <laughs> Another lucky save, you know. So, but anyway, Absolutely, yeah. But anyway, Manazi's still back. Okay, he, he had pounded the car from the rear, okay, and he, he kind of slows down, and, and he's watching this thing unfold. You know, John and I go to the right, and the bad guys go to the left, you know. So then he goes, oh, my God, these guys are going to escape. Okay, so now they're coming towards Manowski, and and Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove were making a U-turn. They're going to try to play catch-up. So Manowski said, hey, you know what the heck? I mean, we've been playing bumper cars, you know, for the, the short part of the morning, and I've already rammed them hard one time. He said, what the heck? I'm going to ram them a second time. And you know what? That was a great call on his part. Because he said, hey, they're going to escape. Remember, remember when I said, you know, there was like is this unspoken electrical moment when it was communicated, these guys will not escape. And Manazi took it on himself. He said, hey, they are not going to escape. So he takes his car, the only weapon he's got right at that point, and they're coming out of a U-turn, and he almost like uh, does a like a pit maneuver on them. You know, he hits them at the front front part of the the uh, fender, and it pushes them to the side farther. To, to you know, they're they're circling around to the right. He pushes them farther to the right, and then the, the car slips off of Manazi's car. It still has forward momentum, so he ends up kind of like locking bumpers with them, the rear bumper, and he's continuing to push them sideways and they end up pinned up against a tree and a, a civilian car that was parked in, in a driveway at uh, at uh, 122nd and, South, and uh, 82nd Avenue, okay? And um, 
the car is um, completely pinned because Manazi ended up parked almost like right next to the stolen car. The car, the stolen car is up against a tree and then the uh, pinned up against a civilian car. So they're blocked on two sides by, by large cars, a tree in the front, and then Ben and Jerry come up behind and they don't actually like pin him in. You know, Jer- uh, Ben stopped at your regular car stop distance. You know, he was, he must have been, I don't know, 10, 12 yards behind them, but they were blocked in. So that that is how we stopped the, the the car. Okay, again, it was an unspoken electrical moment, you know, that said these guys are not going to escape today, and, and that is absolutely correct, you know, because you know I I, I can't even uh, fathom uh, how um, Manowski decided to just ram them. Okay, and, and he ended up doing the right thing, you know, because they were uh, they were pinned in place. There was no way that that car was going to go anywhere. Then there was absolute quiet, absolute stillness. You wow. Know, at at that point, Gordon McNeil, who had been playing catch up, pulled up and seized the car pinned in place, and he parks next to Manowski. He didn't block his uh, his. Uh, doors so that Manazi would have an exit, you know, but he parked uh, with his car kind of to the rear of, uh, of Manazi's um, car. Like I said, everything was still, perfectly still, and John and I, J- Jake and I are across the street. We're still shaking off the effects uh, of the crash. Again, I can tell you absolutely that it was perfectly still because, I mean, I, I, I heard nothing. I mean, the car engine was kind of like uh, ticking, you know, from the heat. You know how when you turn a car up, you know, right. sometimes they, they click, click, tick, 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 right. you know. And I heard nothing, you know. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jake starts opening the door. I start opening my door. You know, I look... Um, I, I didn't even have to look, okay, because as I'm opening my door, I hear huge noises. Gordon McNeil had exited his car. Simultane- this was all happening simultaneously. Gordon had exited the car, drew his revolver, took a, a, a barricade position, a, a cover, behind the engine block of Manowski's car, and he's yelling, Police! FBI! Put your hands up. At the same time, Gordon and Jerry had parked behind the car. They jumped out of their uh, car seats. Uh, ben is behind his, the driver's side door, and Jerry is behind the passenger side door. And Ben is yelling, "Police, FBI, don't move!" You know, they're, they're giving orders. Okay, and J- and Jerry has uh, Jerry had placed uh, the uh, the bubble gum light, the the little blue light, flashing light, had placed it on the dash. So the light is flashing. They're giving instructions, and the response was. Boom! 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 That 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 broke the silence, you know, uh, because you know, before I even exited my car, I heard the gunshots. You know, I'm thinking, God, you know, this is incredible. You know, that's a huge noise, huge noise. I mean, it was like, oh, you know, I mean, I, I knew uh, gunshots. Uh, I mean, you you remember gunshots from uh, from firearms training and stuff like that, you know, but. You know yeah. what it's like when you forget to put your, your ears on it, fire exactly. on. It's loud. 
And and you know what? But as loud as that was, it wasn't it wasn't loud. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of weird. Again, you know, that's a um, a survival trait, I guess, a a fight or flight uh, response. You know, um, because again, no earmuffs, but um, you know, it uh, it was. Uh, I could hear it, but it wasn't painful. I mean, it wasn't so loud that I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I forgot to get my earmuffs, you know. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, again, you know, uh, the fight or flight response, you know, it's called auditory exclusion. Your hearing kind of dims down a little bit, you know. I mean, your senses go, some senses go up, some senses go down, you know. But I, I didn't, I didn't feel that the, uh, again, you know, I've been around gunshots without ear, ear protection, and you, you practically jump out of your skin, and you go, whoa, what the heck was that? You know, this time, you know, I mean, I knew what it was, and I wasn't jumping, and it didn't hurt, you know, so. But as I start running across the street, John uh, Hanlon is running across the street to reinforce uh, Ben and Jerry. I'm running across the street to reinforce Ben and Jerry, but... Uh, as I'm running across, you know, I, I, I'm still scanning the area, you know, and it's hard to see because uh, of the trees. You know, I'm in sunlight. I'm looking east. I'm looking into the sun, <clears throat> and I'm looking, trying to see the, the, the activity underneath a, a couple of shade trees, and I can't see anything. I mean, all I see is kind of like a dark, darkest shade area, you know, and I saw, I saw Ben and Jerry standing up. But uh, and then I looked at Gordon, who was partly in the sun, and I see Gordon to the left. I see Ben and Jerry to the right. I see John heading to reinforce Ben and Jerry. So I said, "Okay, if John and I go help Ben and Jerry, that'll that means there'll be four agents on the right side, and I only see Gordon McNeil on the left." I said, "So that'll make that area the weakest point." In our line, okay, because we had a line going north and south, aiming at, at the at the bad guys or where we thought the bad guys were. So I made a conscious decision halfway across the street to to veer uh, to the left to reinforce Gordon. Okay, and I said, okay, it'll be Ben, Jerry, and John on the right side, and then it'll be Gordon McNeil and myself on the left. I said that's a little bit more balance. So that's what made me veer off to the left to help uh, reinforce Gordon's position, you know. But there's no chance of crossfire. Exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. You're you're so smart, you know. <laughs> there's absolutely no chance of crossfire, right? Exactly. That was the whole purpose, you know. We want to make a, a form a line, you know, where our bullets aren't aren't going to, you know, hit some some of the good guys, you know. So, so. Uh, Again, as I'm running across the street, everything seems to be in slow motion. Not quite slow motion, but not quite normal motion. Again, the the, the popping sounds, I, I could tell you clearly that Gordon's weapon was making a, a, a certain type of sound. He was shooting a revolver. And then Ben and Jerry's weapons, weapons were making different sounds from the revolver. They were shooting 9mm pistols. Okay, I could distinguish between the, the shots. Okay, and then I, I could hear this huge monster sound: kaboom, kaboom! It was coming from uh, the jumble of cars in front of me, and I again they were covered by shade. And by this time, you know, there was gun smoke up in the air. You know, so it was kind of like I mean, 
it wasn't like I was caught in a snowstorm, you know, <laughs> where I couldn't see, but I, I didn't know where the band guys were. But And it's funny how, how the mind works. I, I, I did like a, a trigonometry assessment. I looked at the angle that uh, Ben and Jerry were, were shooting at, and then I looked at the angle that Gordon McNeil was shooting at. Okay, and I said, somewhere in the middle of that jumble of cars, where those two lines intersect, that's where the bad guys are. So I had a general idea where they were, but not, not a specific idea. So, um, again, I, I run up to reinforce Gordon, okay? And at that point in time, I mean, I wasn't... How can I put this? I wasn't scared, okay? I was apprehensive, Okay. I mean, shots are being fired. I mean, you know, as I'm running, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I ended up running into the direct line of fire that uh, Platt was, was shooting at, at McNeil. Okay. And uh, I kind of got that message, you know, when I heard these things flying by, by <laughs> you know, these, wow. these, these angry insects going out. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) From my Marine Corps days, I knew that that was a projectile breaking the sound barrier, you know, when they go. So, but again, I wasn't, I wasn't, apprehension and fear, scared to me are two different things, you know. I was apprehensive, okay, but I wasn't scared. I was still functioning. I was still moving. I was still, you know, assessing, still trying to solve problems, you know. But then something funny happened on the way to the gunfight, you know, I, one one minute I'm looking at Gordon, you know, because I'm keying off of Gordon's back, you know, where he's shooting, what direction he's shooting in, and I, I swear that I mean it was like a, a magic show. I'm looking at Gordon, and the next thing I know, I'm looking up at the blue sky, and I'm thinking, what the hell just happened, you know? And and my mind is trying to wrap wrap around this scenario, you know, and I'm thinking, what happened? And then I looked around, you know, to my to my uh, to my right. And I had, I, to get to Gordon McNeil's position, I had to go around the back of Gordon's car, which was sticking out at an angle. And I looked to the right and I'm thinking, you idiot. I said, you should have given yourself more room to get around Gordon's car, you know, because I said, you cut it real close. You know, you cut it close to the, to the rear uh, fender. I said, and you hit you ran into the fender of Gordon's car. That's why you ended up on your back. That was my That's mind. That's what you thought. That's what I thought, right? That my mind was trying to fill in a gap because you know I had no experience in this before. So my mind, you know, is trying to say, okay, you were running and now you're on your back. What happened? Okay, and I'm, I'm looking around and I immediately said to myself, I ran into the back of Gordon McNeil's car and knocked myself silly, and I'm on my back. You know, and I'm thinking, you're stupid, stupid, you know, and I kept saying, you should have given yourself more room, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, so I, I tried to push myself up because I, my, I'm still, I'm, it's amazing, I'm still focused on Gordon's back. He's still shooting. Okay, but I see something odd is going on, you know, because he, instead of everything being in normal motion, everything all of a sudden is like super slow. I mean, I could see Gordon firing, his hand would come up real slow and then come back down and then and and my hearing was total toast it was completely gone i mean i could just very vaguely i mean when i saw the gun smoke coming out of his gun i guess my mind filled in a noise because i couldn't hear i mean i couldn't hear a thing you know i couldn't hear anything at all 
okay, I had like a huge ringing in my ears. You know, it's like, what the hell? I mean, and I, I'm thinking, I, I really not, must have knocked the piss out of myself when I ran into Gordon's car. I mean, I'm still, I'm still working with the, the, the car scenario, you know? And I'm, I'm thinking, I need to get up to help Gordon. I need to get up to help Gordon. And, and I'm using my left arm to try to push up because I've got the shotgun in, uh, in my right hand. And uh, I'm pushing and nothing's happening. And I'm thinking, what the heck? And then I see Gordon uh, run out of ammunition. And he ducks down behind the engine block. And then uh, he had been shot in the hand, you know, and... His hand, I didn't know how badly it was hit, but apparently it was pretty, pretty well mashed up, you know, it was like, like, uh, ground beef almost, you know. But he tried to reload behind Manazi's car and he couldn't, so he retreated from Manazi's car to the back of his car, okay, and, uh, crouches down behind that car and I'm thinking, you know, Jesus, you know, I said, you gotta, you gotta get up. I said, you've got the shotgun, if you can get that shotgun aimed, and into the car, I, I, I could I could see the bad guy car, okay, because I, I, I'm on my back and I'm looking up. I can't see the, the subjects in the car, but I can see the top of the car. And I'm thinking, if I can get this shotgun in there and, and pump five rounds of shotgun, you know, firepower in there, it'll end this gunfight in a minute, you know. So I'm trying to push up and I'm trying to push up and, and nothing's happening. And I'm thinking, God dang it. You know, so I said, what the F? is wrong with my arm. I said, it's not functioning. And I had to force myself, uh, Jerry. I mean, I'm looking up at the tops of the of the cars, looking for threats, okay? And I had to literally tear my eyes away from the, the, the point where I thought the danger was to look at my left arm, you know? And I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with my left? I mean, I, I'm pushing, you know, trying to push myself up. Because, I, I, you know, honestly, I didn't feel normal. I mean, I felt a little odd. You know, I mean, like my ears were ringing, you know, to no end. You know, it's like, and it, I, it felt like I was like, not only were my ears ringing, it felt like my whole body was like, you know, like someone had rung a bell and my whole body was like a bell and it was still vibrating from the from the, from the the ringing, you know, like, you know, <laughs> you know? and I'm thinking, what the, okay, so I tore my eyes off the point, the threat point, and I actually looked down at to see why my arm isn't working, you know, and I'm thinking, what the hell is this, you know, I could not believe what I saw, I mean, it would look like roadkill, you know, and I'm wow. thinking, that, that can't be my arm, I said, there's no way. Where were you shot in the arm? I was shot uh, in in the middle of the forearm, you know, directly between my wrist and my elbow. Okay, on, uh, the round hit me um, on the uh, on the uh, medical side, medically speaking, on the ulnar, the ul the ulnar bone side, and then it, it kept coming straight towards me, and it it came out the radius bone side. But this is a, a miraculous shot because if if my my bones were thick enough to have actually slowed the the bullet down. It didn't stop it, you know. It didn't, you know. It wasn't a bulletproof vest or anything, you know. But uh, it slowed the the velocity down enough <clears throat> when it hit the first bone and then it hit the second bone. It slowed it down enough that instead of exploding straight into my chest, it exploded up, you know, up into the air, you know, like. It almost did like a 90 degree turn in my arm. It hit, it came in flat straight. And then when it hit the bones, it ricocheted up into the air, you know. It blew my arm apart. 
you know, but the, I didn't get any fragments or shrapnel hits uh, to, to, to my uh, face or chest, you know, so, but uh, needless to say, you know, it would kind of ruin my health record, you know, so, because I'm looking down at this thing and I'm thinking, that can't be my arm. There's no freaking way this is my arm. Because, I mean, half of it was, looked like it was gone and then my my hand was on the on the ground off at a, at a weird angle. My, my uh, fingers and hand were just puffed up with uh, blood loss. I mean, uh, it had bled into the tissue. My my fingers looked like huge fat sausages, you know, like those you know big Italian sausages you buy in the store, except that they were red, you know. And I'm thinking, oh my god, I did not believe that was my arm to the point where I actually took the shotgun in my right hand. Again, I'm on my back and I placed it across my chest. I took my good hand, my right hand, reached over, picked up my left arm, my left hand. Okay, I said, this is not, there's no way this is my arm. I said, it, wow. it, so I picked up my, my uh, left hand and my right hand, and I picked up my arm, and I'm thinking, holy, t- it's attached. <laughs> I, I could see it was attached uh, by the uh, by the interior of the forearm. It, there was still still some, some strands of muscle and, and, and skin, you know, that was attached <laughs> to my to my lower to my upper arm and I'm thinking it's attached it is my arm and then uh-huh. I looked at my fingers you know and I'm thinking those sausage things are my fingers you know because I, I chew my nails I, I mean I bite my nails you know and I've looked at my nails and I'm thinking <laughs> that's the only way I recognize my arm is I'm thinking yep those are my nails I mean I, I have this bad habit of chewing my nails you know I said that, that's my arm I said that's it it's, I've been shot you know, and then, you know what I did next was just kind of weird. You know, I said, oh, okay, you know, I threw my arm. I mean, I I, I, I took the hand, you know, um, and I threw my left hand on the ground. I just, like, tossed it aside like it was, like, you know, I couldn't be bothered with it at that point in time, which in reality I couldn't, you know. Cause right, the, you, had, you, you had a yeah. lot more yeah, there to worry bullets, about. Bullets were still flying over my head, you know? You know, but you know what the the bizarre part of this whole story is? What's that? I felt no pain. That that's why I didn't know I had been injured. Okay, I, and I, my brain was trying to, to to bridge the gap. You know, I'm thinking, how, how did I end up on the ground? I, I I couldn't I couldn't even think of it conceptualize the idea of getting shot. You know, I'm thinking I ran into the back of Gordon's car, but it wasn't until I, I visually examined my arm that I that I accepted the fact that I had been shot. So, but I felt no pain. I'm thinking, well, how, how can you tell you're injured if you feel no pain? You know, again, that's a, 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 a fight or flight response. You know, to to uh, getting injured. You know, by by the by the by a human. Uh, you know, the human system, you know. So anyway, I just ignored it, and shots are still being fired. I took up the shotgun, and uh, I'm I'm still looking for threats, you know. And as I'm assessing, I'm assessing, I see some movement off to the left, you know, and I immediately, my eyes focused on it, you know. And I'm thinking, what the hell was that? I said, I, you know, it was gone. So then I'm scanning to the right, and then as I'm scanning to the right, I see movement off to the left again. I'm, and I quick turn, you know, I'm thinking, what the hell? And then I'm looking to the left, and then I see something, you know, and I'm thinking, what, what the hell was that flash? And I kind of like screw my up, my eyes up like this, looking at my forehead, you know, and, and then I see something come out of my forehead. I'm thinking, oh my god, it's a, a liquid flying from my forehead, you know. I said, and then I saw what it was. It was arterial bleeding, and it was like, 
and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ. So it's splurting. A... Blood is splurting from your my, forehead. My forehead, yeah. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm having a bad day here, man. I mean, uh, the arm didn't bother me so much, even though it was a massive injury, you know. But what scared me to death was uh, this hit to my head, you know, because I couldn't see it. You know, so I put the shotgun back down across my chest, and I took my right hand, and I started exploring my, my left, the left side of my forehead. And um, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to feel a big hole up there. I'm a big broken part of my head or mush up there. And I, as I'm pressing my hand up there, I said, well, I mean, I don't feel any breaks. I mean, my skull is still intact, you know, and, and like, a, like, a big, like a big monkey, you know, I'm, I'm inadvertently compressing the, the injury you know I'm, I'm, I'm when every time i press my hand up there i looked at my hand it's full of blood and then I, I press it again and then i use my fingers and and i what i what i was doing is i was compressing the injury and i actually had moved a flap of skin on the wound and it kind of like covered it to a point where it stopped squirting you know it, it kept oozing blood you know and, and my face and my scalp and you know, everywhere else, you know, on my head, but it stopped squirting, you know, and, and that kind of eased my, my concern, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't have a big mushy spot on my, on my head, so it can't be that bad, you know, so I grabbed the shotgun back up, you know, and I started scanning for threats, you know, and the thing went on so long, uh, Jerry, that I'm thinking, you know what, I mean, and, and slowly but surely my, my hearing came back, and the shooting went, the, the gunshots went from, uh, Directly in front of me, off to the right a little bit, and then off to the right a little bit more, and then off to the right a little bit more. So I'm thinking, you know, whatever's going on is off to the right. You know, I said, there's only one way I can I can get there. And, and I ha- said, I have to crawl past Gordon's car, okay, and get around the rear of his car and move to the right so that I can see what the hell's going on behind these cars. You know, because I, I did, didn't want to try to stand up. You know, I'm thinking, you know, standing up in the mid, in the middle of this gunfight is probably not a good idea. You know? So, so not a good idea. I uh, I uh, crawled to the you know around Gordon's car and I looked over to the right and at that point, this is the saddest part of the uh, of the situation that that it's in you know it's burned into my mind and heart. I came around to a, uh, Gordon's car to, work, to a point where I could look past his tires, his rear tires, and I looked and I saw John Hanlon behind uh, Ben's car. I saw Ben at the rear of his car on the left side, on the driver's side, and John was down behind the car. And I saw Jerry Dove by uh, the driver's side door. Okay, and they were all still. They weren't moving. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I said, they're all dead. I said, I can't freaking believe this, okay? And when I saw that, I I, I was just appalled and I was angry. I got more angry, if you can imagine that. And then it just so happened at that precise moment, there was a pair of legs. And I, I was looking underneath McNeil's car. I saw a pair of legs running from the rear of uh, Ben's car to the front of his car, it wasn't running, running. It was more like a like a shuffle, like a shuffle walk, or a sh- it, you know, it, he he wasn't walking, but he wasn't running. He was kind of like shuffling along, you know. And since I saw Ben, Jerry, and John down, 
and I knew Gordon was somewhere behind me, and I could see Gilarantia and Ron Reisner across the street. They had arrived uh, at some point in the shooting. I said, the only pair of legs that's still walking around this area has got to be bad guys. Even though I couldn't see his, his, you know, I couldn't see above his knees, I said, it's got to be a bad guy. You know, so I, I took the shotgun in one hand, you know, and I aimed it, kind of like stuck it out there. And I'm pointing it in the general direction of of this individual's feet, legs, you know, from the knee down. And I'm thinking, okay, shoot. And then I looked beyond the target, and I saw Jerry Dove and Ben Grogan. I'm thinking, don't shoot, okay, because if you miss, you're going to hit Ben and Jerry, you know. And I said, shoot, you know, this is the first time you've seen a target. Shoot, you've got the shotgun, you know. It was loaded with pellets, you know, and I'm thinking, don't shoot because you'll you'll hit Ben and Jerry. So I went back and forth. For me, it seemed like a minute, you know, but, you know, in reality, it was probably just like two seconds, you know, a typical shoot, don't shoot scenario that you, that you see in training, you know, somewhere. And I got what's called uh, traumatic amnesia, okay, because I don't remember what I did. To, to this day, I still don't remember what I did. But the physical evidence indicates that I fired my shotgun at the perpetrator's feet. Okay, and luckily none of the pellets hit Ben or Jerry, you know, because, I mean, I, I don't think I could live with, with myself knowing that I had shot them, and maybe my shot is what ended up, you know, killing them, you know. So, I mean, it was it was a hard choice, you know. But autopsy showed that, you know, shotgun pellets had hit plat in both feet, okay. It was uh, like two uh, two hits on uh, into each foot, you know. Amazing, you know, so... And, but I don't remember making that shot. You know, again, I was told that the, that the evidence and the and the wound uh, at autopsy showed that he he uh, he had been hit in the feet by by shotgun pellets. You know, so so again, uh, mentally I did not shoot, but in reality I did. Okay, so I kept scooting around to the right side of the uh, Gordon's car, and by the time I got to a position where I could sit up and peek around the, the edge of the car, uh, the edge of his car. I looked at Ben and Jerry's car, you know, and I saw the, the two bank robbers in there. And I'm thinking, son of a gun, you know. Uh, They're uh, in the bureau car trying to flee in, in Ben and Jerry's car? Yep, they were trying to escape in Ben and Jerry's car. And I'm thinking, son of a gun, these guys are, uh, are ruthless. I mean, they're, 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 they won't stop. And uh, I'm thinking, and then I assess the situation. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I said, if they back that car up. You know, because I could see him, you know, the driver who ended up being Platt. Platt was a passenger in the stolen Monte Carlo. He ends up the driver in Ben's car. And, of course, the reverse the re- reverse is true for Baddix. He ends up being the passenger in, in Ben's car. But I'm thinking, you know, immediately I, I assessed the situation, you know, and I said, oh, my God, if they back that car up, they're going to drive over Ben, Jerry, and John. I said, there's no way that's going to happen. You know, I mean... They're probably dead, but I can't be a hundred percent sure that they're dead. But if they drive, if this guy drives over them, they will be dead. I said, and they're not going to move that car. You know, the only way they're moving that car is over my dead body. I thought to myself, there's no freaking way they're going to do it. So I had the shotgun in my in my still in my right hand, and then uh, I figure I'm trying to figure out how to shoot the shotgun with one hand, you know. And then I, it just came to me because I'm I'm at the the right rear bumper of Gordon's car and the bumper had a lip on it you know and I'm thinking okay you know I'll, I'll use the lip on the bumper as my left hand you know I, I, so I put the shotgun on the lip and uh, aimed okay 
at the driver, and I fired what I thought to be my first shot, and I missed. I mean, I hit the fender. You know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I was so upset with myself. I was pissed. You know, I'm thinking, you idiot, how can you miss with a shotgun? So I, I, I worked out a, uh, a reloading mechanism. Uh, yeah, now, how did you rack the shotgun with one hand? And that was... It just again, it's just luck, you know. It just came to me, you know. No, no, when, it's, it's when, not luck. But go when, ahead. When the um, when when the the shotgun fired, it pushed my right shoulder back, you know. And I I would like I told you I was kind of like in a semi setting position at the rear of uh, Gordon's car, and I said, you know what? I'll just let the momentum, you know, push me back into a full sitting position with my back up against the bumper, and then I let the shotgun slide through my right hand. Until, you know, the butt of the shotgun hit the ground. And then I pinched the shotgun between my legs, which, between my thighs to steady it. And then I moved my hand up to this, to the stock, the upper stock. And I racked the shotgun with my good hand, then moved my good hand down to the uh, trigger guard and then rolled over to the left side, put the shotgun on the bumper, found the, the sights and then fired. Uh, a second shot. And I did that uh, four times. You know, I, I just back and, you know, fire, recoil back, you know, let the shotgun slide between my, you know, between my legs, pinch it, rack it, come back up, you know, four times. As it turns out, uh, all four rounds, uh, none of the pellets, according to the autopsy, none of the pellets that I fired into the uh, passenger compartment of uh, Ben's car hit any of the subjects. But, it accomplished my mission. It prevented them from sitting up and trying to move the car. Okay, because they had to duck down with so much, you know, so many pellets coming in into the uh, the compartment of the car. You know, so they they did not move the car. Okay, which gave gave more time, you know, for me to to get organized. You know, and more time for for uh, more agents and officers to respond. At that point, I'm out of ammo, and I put the shotgun on the ground, you know, and then I have my back up against the the bump the uh, bumper of Gordon's car, and I look across the street, and uh, there's uh, Agents Orantia and Reiser, Gilbert Orantia, Ron Reiser, and that's the first time I remember saying anything, to, you know, during the whole incident. I said, "It's okay, come on over," telling them, "Hey, it's okay, it, it's 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 safe." Because they, uh, when I spoke to them after the fact, they didn't know where the subjects were because the subjects had been, you know, running back and forth, you know, behind the you know, the cars. And, you know, it, it was just hard to see. You know, they were at a distance of about 40, 45 yards, again, looking from the sun into a shaded area, you know. So they had no, no clue where the subjects were. But when so you were said, saying, it's okay, come on over, did you think that you had shot them and that yeah, they were dead I, I, inside? I, I thought that at that point in time, yes, I mean, there's no way they could have survived, you know, with with four shotgun rounds into the compartment of the car. No way, you know. In response, they yelled at me saying, stay down, stay down, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, crap, you know, I said, they don't know the gunfight's over. I said, you know, I said, and I could feel myself getting weaker and weaker and weaker, you know, I mean, as every... Every second went by, I could feel myself bleeding away, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know. It got to a point where I went from, you know, pretty much cognizant, you know, aware, to a point where, you know, when I was behind uh, Gordon's car, you know, I, I had to keep shaking my head 
to stay awake because I was passing out. I was like falling asleep, and I kept shaking my head, you know, to, to clear the cobwebs, you know. I remember to, I shook my head to a point where my brain hurt. I mean, I kept shaking my head violently, you know, to stay awake, you know. And I swear, my brain was hurting from the violent shaking that I would I would give myself, you know, to, to, to stay awake. And I said, oh, my God. And I looked up and down. I looked uh, north and south on 82nd Avenue. And I was amazed. You know, the fire engines and ambulances and cop cars, they had set up a perimeter on the, on the street. And I'm thinking, okay, nobody knows the gunfight's over. I said, I said, I am going to die here. I said, I can't, you know, the gunfight's over. And now I'm going to die because nobody knows it except me. So I'm thinking, I have to do Nobody's something. coming to your rescue. They're just letting you bleed there. Well, I mean, you know, and I don't blame anybody. I mean, I don't blame uh, Gil or Ron because nobody knows who these guys are, okay? And it's like me. I ran right into the teeth of, uh, of Platt's assault rifle, okay? And he, he, he hit me twice. Okay, I'm so lucky to be alive, you know, really. So, I mean, I can't blame anybody. I mean, you don't know where they are. Are you going to run straight into the teeth of an assault rifle? No. I mean, <laughs> that's why they kept saying, stay down, you know, because <laughs> we don't know where these guys are. And I, I really couldn't, commu- my communication skills were kind of, you know, depleted by that time. you Because know? <laughs> you know? I was ranting and raving and shaking my head, you know, trying to stay awake, you know. I was talking to myself, you know. But uh, I figured, you know what? If I don't show these guys that it's safe to come in here, I say, we are going to bleed to death, you know, because by the time they, nobody right. was going to run in there, you know, to, to, to help me, you know, because it's like, again, you might run into the teeth of a, run into the barrel of a, of an assault rifle, you know, so, so I'm thinking, oh, you know, I have to do something to, to show these guys, uh, that it's okay. So, um, I said, the only thing I know what to do or know how to do is I said, is to stand up. If I stand up and show them that it's okay to stand up, then they'll they'll know that if I can stand up and I'm closer to the threat, then they they can stand up and at least come to support me. I mean, you know, these these are all thoughts going you know through my mind at about a, a thousand miles a second. You know, so the other part of me is like, hey, you know what? You're dying. You know, I am going to die. Okay. And and I went through this, you know, the five stages of of, uh, of uh, injury or death. You know, forget what they are now. <laughs> you know, disbelief. You know, bargaining. You know, anger, that type of stuff. And I went through those. Stuff. I said, No, I don't want to die. You know, and I, I said, I don't want to die. You know, and bargaining. Come on, God. You know, Lord. You know, just give me, give me, give me a little more time, and I'll I'll donate more at church, or I'll go to church every day. You know, or, you know. Bargaining and then anger. I'm gonna screw you, God. You know, <laughs> I'll do this myself. You know? <laughs> and that's and that's all going to your mind in a rush, in a rush, in a, a rush, rush. You know, it's like yeah, you know, there's uh, there's five stages of death. You know, they call it. You know, but I went through uh, I went through all five stages and like I'm again, you know, my mind is going a thousand miles a second. You know, and I went through it. You know, and then I said, you know, something happened. It was miraculous. I came to the conclusion. You know, I accepted death. You know, that that's the last stage, acceptance. Okay, um, I I said, you know what, you're gonna die, you know, accept it. I mean, you know, and I could tell internally, you know, my 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 physical, you know, uh, my cognizant ability, you know, my awareness. It was like, oh, man, you know, it's everything's fading out. I mean, I'm 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 literally everything's blacking out, you know, and I'm weaker, 
and you know I'm I'm just like I, I I don't know which way is up you know and that type of stuff you know and it just came over me I, I, suddenly I said you know what I accept death you know and a, an amazing transformation happened there because after I accepted death and I talked to Gordon McNeil and, and John Hanlon who survived they said the same thing once they accepted death a transformation came over them they were no, no longer fearful okay and that's what happened to me I, I no longer became fearful you know and that worked in my favor because you know instead of being you know glad or or thankful you know i you know you know about going into the darkness you know uh i was no longer fearful i became the most dangerous person on that scene you couldn't take anything else from me okay i have already accepted death what else are you going to take from me okay i was totally you know, fearless. I mean, I was like, I'm not afraid. So I forced myself up to my feet and I said, I'll show everybody here that it's a safe area, but I really don't know if these guys are dead in the car yet. You know, I mean, because they should be dead, but I don't know. I, I'm, so I'm, I turned around and I started, started walking towards the car and I would take two steps, set a position and fire into the car take two more steps, set up a position, you know, a shooting position, one-handed, and fire into the car. And I kept stepping, firing, stepping, firing, until I got up close to the car, and um, I shot the driver. Uh, I had shot him in the head from uh, my first shot from my revolver was to the head, and I thought it had hit him pretty good, you know. And I ended up with my last round, and and I aimed it at the driver, and I hit him in the in the upper chest. And as it turned out, that round, you know, penetrated uh, his chest, and um, it uh, went up into his uh, spinal cord up in the neck area, and hit his spinal cord, and uh, cracked his spinal cord and paralyzed him at that point in time. And uh, he died a few seconds later, you know. So, and that was pretty much the end of that shootout. I mean, but. You know, even though you know, I, I, I'm sorry. When I told you that I had accepted death, and I stood up, I was still hopeful. I mean, I mean, I wasn't, you know, damn the torpedoes, you know, and I wasn't, you know, cursing God or anything. I mean, I was, but I wasn't, you know. I think God has a sense of humor sometimes. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, fine, I'll do it myself. I don't see God's hand coming down here, which is a lie. I saw God's hand everywhere. You know? Oh my God. Yeah, it's like, I mean, because honestly, uh, Jerry, I should have been dead eight times over. You know, it's like if, if I was a cat, I, I burned up eight lives, you know. So, but as a, even though I was cavalier, I'm thinking, I'm a dead man. I have nothing to lose. I was still hopeful in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, you know, if I can get these guys to understand that it's safe and to come in here and help, you know, I said, I, I know Ben and Jerry and, and John need help. You know, I, I, I didn't know, honestly, whether they were, they were alive or dead. I know they weren't moving at all, but I was still hopeful that they were alive. Okay? And I was still alive, and I was still hopeful to remain that way, you know, but, you know, you, you, you never knew. So I moved in. I, 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 um, I, I did what I did with my pistol, you know, and, and that, that ended up ending the shooting, you know. And at that point, you know, Gilbert and, and Ron from across the street had, had started running in to reinforce me. You know, uh, I didn't even notice him until I was at the at the door of Ben's car firing into the car. And um, 
they, they, uh, Ron came to my right and Gilbert to my left, and they said that I had uh, was still clicking on, on empty cylinders, you know, on uh, with my revolver. And they said, uh, Ron said, and this is the, the next thing that I heard, you know, that I remember hearing. Ron said, Ed, put your gun away. It's over, you know. So I said, you know, okay. And my, mentally I said, okay. So I put my, my revolver in my holster. And, you know, out of all those thousands of hours of training, I snapped the the strap on my on my holster. I snapped the gun in place. Okay, all that training, you know, muscle memory. Yeah. Just, and then after that, you know, I took about four steps back away from the car, and I collapsed and fell on my back. You know, so and the next thing I know, I mean, it's pandemonium. You know, agents and officers and medical people, and I mean, at that point in time, you know, the 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 high was gone. I didn't have to worry about anything. And, uh, oh, I would say about uh, maybe a minute after after it was over, my body started working again, and the pain in my body was incredible. The agony that I felt from the, the gunshot wound to my left arm was agony. I mean, it was just like, oh, my God. God, I said, where did this come from? You know, because I was all, I mean, I was riding, you know, the adrenaline high. I'm thinking, hey, hey, this is great, you know. And But when that adrenaline got spent, got used up, oh, my Lord, I have never felt pain like that in my life, you know. I mean, I, the medical people came in, they gave me two shots of morphine, and, and uh, I was still in agony, you know. And I, the, one of the medics was walking by, and I grabbed him by the ankles, you know, because I'm on my back, you know. I said, I, I need I need another shot, you know. And the guy says, forget it. He said, I gave you enough to knock out an elephant. He said, you're not getting any more, you know. And I'm So your adrenaline, even though now you're feeling stuff, your adrenaline was to the point where even the morphine couldn't couldn't bring it down. No, no, it couldn't. It, it couldn't, you know. It's like, wow. You know, so, uh, but, you know, eventually, you know, I mean, it, things settled down, you know, and, and they got, uh, you know, they got Gordon McNeil and, and John Hanlon and myself to the hospital. And, I mean, and I, I kind of sensed that Ben and Jerry were dead, but I no, no one would verify it for me because I kept asking. I said, hey, how's Ben and Jerry? How's Ben? How's Jerry? And they said, oh, no, no, the, the medics have taken care of it. You know, it's like nobody would come right out and look me in the eye and tell me that they're dead, you know. It wasn't until I got to the hospital that Liz told me that, you know, that he, he didn't make it, you know. And it, it was a sad moment, you know. But, I mean, mixed in with the pain, you know, I mean, everything is pain has a, has a way of um, masking feelings, I guess, you know, or, you know, camouflaging feelings because, I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, pain was, was my constant companion, you know, for, for weeks, you know, so, uh, but, uh, I mean, that's the way things ended, you know, I ended up in the hospital, Liz ended up there, you know, and she was a tough trooper, man, she, she was, and she's, like I said, she's the one that finally looked me in the eye and said, she said, Ed, I'm sorry, Ben and, and Jerry didn't make it, you know, and I said, mm, you know, like I said, I kind of sensed it, you know, but nobody would verify it for me until Liz did, you know, she goes, she kind of like teared up a little bit and looked away, you know, so I said, okay, you know. And after that, it just became a, a blur, you know, it's like, you know, doctors and, you know, surgeries and, <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, so. But anyway. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ben and Jerry. Um, both of them are now in the FBI's Hall of Honor. 
uh-huh. where FBI agents who are killed as a direct result of an adversarial action are memorialized, and that's down at, at Quantico, Virginia. Can you tell us a little bit about each of them? Let's start with Ben. He's senior. Okay, we'll give seniority its due. Ben, like I mentioned before, was a, a gentleman and a gentleman. Okay, he always he always wore a white shirt and a tie and a jacket. <laughs> You know, we could be out in 120 degrees, you know, in the, in the Everglades, and he would be wearing a white shirt, a tie, and he might take his jacket off because it was a little warm. But the rest of us, you know, we'd, we'd wear polo shirts or, or something, you know, to, you know, dress down, you know, if we were going to be out doing something, you know. Um, he was he had been educated in the seminary. He was from uh, Georgia. His uh, handle or his nickname on the um, on the squad was doctor, okay, and I, I, I could never figure out why they called them doctor until later on, you know, but Ben had been a squad supervisor, had, you know, became a squad supervisor, stepped down to be a field agent, then became the SWAT team leader at, at some point in time for five years, and then stepped down, you know, as SWAT team leader to give one of the younger guys a chance to be SWAT team leader, and then, he, but he was still on the SWAT team. Ben was in better shape than I was. He was 53 at the time, and I was 33, you know, and um, he was in better shape than I was because the man ran every day. He had lunchtime. He would go to a, uh, a park that was near near the office. He would change in the office and, and then drive over to, to the park, and he'd run two or three miles a day. He would only do two types of exercises. I mean, he would stretch and do the whole thing, you know, but he only did two exercises. He did pull-ups and push-ups. And he ran two or three or four miles a, a day. And that's all he did. You know, he didn't do weights. He didn't do, you know, yoga or anything else, you know. But uh, he, um, he he was in better, like I said, better shape than, than most, most young guys, you know. He was helpful and he was mentoring uh, Jerry, you know, because Jerry had just come on the squad like three or four months before. And uh, he had transferred over from a drug squad. And uh, he was very intelligent, learned, you know, he was worldly. You know, and uh, he, his wife uh, worked in the office. She was like one of the IAs, you know, that uh, that, that did the records checks for us and stuff like that. You know, right, so, intelligence analyst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, intelligence analyst for, for the office, you know. So he was a, a great guy, you know. Now, Jerry, uh, Jerry, I only I had only met Jerry like two, three, or four months before. He was, uh, like I said, he uh, mentioned before or last week, he was one of the, we had four younger agents on the squad, you know. Gilbert Arantia, L. Ortiz, Jerry Dubb, and myself. We were the young bucks, you know. So in that regard, you know, we were always, you know, like doing young buck things, which usually translates into stupid things. You know, <laughs> you know so, but no, Jerry was a, was a, a good guy, you know, and, and he used to get, he had sinuses, and he would complain every time I lit a cigar. But then, then again, everybody, you know, would complain when I lit a cigar, you know. But... <laughs> but I knew he was an attorney, you know, from from West Virginia, you know, and uh, I tell you what, though, I mean, I I don't know many people from from West Virginia, you know. West Virginia gets a lot of a lot of raz, you know, about oh, you're from West Virginia, you know. So, but Jerry, man, again, he was smart, articulate, aggressive, assertive, you know. Like I said, the, a young buck type, you know, and uh, you know, he was a SWAT team member. Uh, he was fit, fit as a fiddle. Uh, you have to be fit to be a SWAT team member, you know, obviously. Gosh, uh, 
like I said, you know, the hardest part is that, you know, I only knew him for about three or four months. We, we traded cars now and then, you know, it's like, hey, I, I need to, can I use your car? You know, well, I'll trade cars with this car. I said, sure, you know, I mean, because he was doing surveillance. He, went, he was trying to mix, mix up different types of vehicles in the neighborhood. So, you know, we, he would trade cars with different guys, you know, and stuff like that. So, again, he was uh, one of those young bucks, you know, it's like ag- ag- aggressive. You know, he always, you know, I mean, of course, the, the senior ages were always razzing us. It's like, ah, oh, you young guys, you don't know crap, you know, blah, 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 you know. So we were always trying to uh, show the old guys that we did did know crap. You know, we were always uh, looking to, to work, you know, volunteering to, to, to work and, and uh, go do stuff that, uh, that uh, you know, as you get older, you know, you say, eh, I, I can wait until tomorrow to do that. Jerry was a good guy, though. I mean, uh, like I said, he was full of life, you know. Uh, I mean, he was single. I mean, it's like like I told you, man, I, I said, if, if I thought my job was the greatest job in the world, I, imagine him. You know, again, he's he's we're contemporaries. We're the same age, you know. I think I may have been like two or three years older than him, you know. But, I mean, he thought the same thing. Being an FBI agent was the greatest job in the world, you know, and he was, people used to tease him, you know, it's like, dude, you're living a dream. You know, you're single, you're an FBI agent, and you live on Miami Beach. What more could you want? You know, <laughs> plus you got the greatest job in the world, you know, so. <laughs> Tell me about the other guys uh, that were injured that day. Uh, well, Gordon McNeil was uh, the supervisor. He he had been um, he had risen up to be an ASAC in Houston, and then he got a, a sports injury. He was hit in the left eye by a softball at a softball game, and he lost his eye, so he couldn't see out of his out of out of his left eye. You know, so Gordon has been called many things. Okay, a prince among men. That's one of the words, one of the descriptions that that. Um, that uh sticks in my mind you know and he was he was uh, he was articulate well spoken good looking he looked like there uh, back then in 86 there was a big hulk hulkamania you know if you remember the wrestler the hulk the blonde wrestler the big uh um, i'm not i'm not up i'm not up to date on wrestlers i i i, I forget what uh anyway he Gordon, you know, guys used to say that he looked like the Hulk, the wrestler, the, you know, the Hulker. So they called him Hulkster, okay. And he was fit. I mean, he and I, uh, Gordon, I, I asked for a recommendation for a gym, and he, he told me uh, that uh, he, he belonged to a gym on uh, Biscayne Boulevard, you know, which is a little bit north of the office. And uh, I used to see him in there pushing some big weight, man. He would bench press 300 pounds, you know, easy. Okay, and uh, he was built like a rock, you know. As a matter of fact, when he was shot, one of the rounds that hit him hit him in the neck uh, as he was ducking, and the round went went through his uh, neck muscles, his trapezoids or whatever the heck they call them, or yeah, I don't know. But the the doctor said that the only reason that the round didn't sever his spinal cord because it went down and it ricocheted off his spinal cord at about uh, mid mid chest and then bounced to the right and peppered his liver. The doctor said, hey, I have no doubt in my mind that your muscle mass, the muscles in your neck and, and your shoulders, were so thick and, and so, um, you know, dense that they slowed that bullet down to a point where it did not sever your spinal cord. Instead, it just kind of bumped up against it and ricocheted it back, you know, in the opposite direction, you know, so... 
the doctor always credited his uh, his workout ethic for the, for that, you know, and I have no doubt, you know. So he was just a super guy. He had a beautiful wife and had two beautiful little girls at the time. Now, shoot, they're probably in their 40s by now, you know. So very conscientious, um, would give you the shirt off his back, you know. Um, like I said, you know, he, he was worried about the case. You know, that's why he, he told Ben, he said, hey, what do you think about running a surveillance tomorrow? I mean, it wasn't Ben's idea. It was his, you know. It's like, hey, let's do it, you know. John Hanlon, John Hanlon, everybody called John Jake, or as better known as Jake the Snake, you know. <laughs> so John was an attorney. Um, he, uh, I think he graduated from Georgetown or American University, one of those D.C. locations, one of those D.C. schools. It wasn't Catholic, but um, everybody hated John. Do you know why they hated him? No. Why? Because he was so freaking smart, okay? He was maddeningly, I can't say the word, he, he was so smart he made you mad. Um, he was, he would go into an interview, and I would go into an interview, and I would take copious notes. And I'd end up with three pages of notes, you know, whenever, I mean, you know, if it was an in-depth interview, I'd have three, five pages, sometimes ten pages of notes, you know, that I would take. John Hanlon could go into that same interview, and I've seen, I saw him do it, would would go into that interview and ask questions and interact with the uh, with the witness. And then uh, we'd be there an hour or, or 45 minutes or an hour and a half, and he would not take one stitch of a note not one i mean if there was an exotic spelling to something you know or some some exotic piece of information he would write note that down yeah but otherwise he would not take a note okay and how could he write his 302 that's the thing he was so smart so brilliant that he would go back to the office he would sit down and he would get his little dictaphone machine and he would sit down and he would and I because he sat he sat behind me so I had to listen to him <laughs> dictate his reports every day he would sit there and he would dictate his report his 302 off the top of his head and he was he was that good I mean he was he would just you know it's like hey you know no notes no discovery you know <laughs> You know what? That's what I was thinking in my mind. If you know, if he ever had to testify in court, then the defense attorney is going to question. You know, where are your notes? Because we always have to bring out the what we call exactly. a one A envelope exactly. with our notes, and he doesn't have any. Yeah, exactly. No, but he was that brilliant. I'm telling you, he 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 would just come in and he would dictate, and he he would remember the facts. He would remember the details. It's like you know addresses and and positions and. It's like, and people would just shake their heads and look at him and go, what the hell? <laughs> he was so smart. I mean, he, he would get in trouble, you know, because, you know, can you imagine trying to trying to supervise or manage a, a person like that? You know he's smarter than you are. He knows he's smarter than you are. So, yeah, that's the bad thing, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the worst you know, of it. I mean, supervising a guy. So that's why he was he was perfect with, for Gordon. Gordon was easy going. It's like, hey, Jake, you know, just you know, do do what you think is right, you know. But if you you know if you run into a situation, just run it by me first, you know. Don't 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 sandbag me or or blindside me. So if you do something, let me know. 
He said, otherwise, go put people in jail. Uh, let me see who else. Um, Ron Reisner was a former Marine in Vietnam, like two or three tours in Vietnam. His nickname on the uh, on the squad was uh, Morose. Okay, he was uh, a very quiet. He he was a no nonsense guy, you know. By the book, you know, for the book only the book, you know. So it's like former Marine captain, you know. So um, I mean. And he's the type of guy that if you told him, said, Ron, we need you to surveil this this, uh, this apartment building because we know there's a killer here, and he will come out in the next week. You know, can you sit here for a week and watch? He would sit there for a week and watch. You know, t- typical, you know, hold until relieved. You know, he was that type of person, you know, and everybody kept saying. Like, a, like a good soldier. Exactly. Everybody in the squad kept saying, hey, you know what, you better hope Ron... You never do anything wrong that, that Ron, you know, is given your, your case, you know, to, to find you and arrest you because Ron will find you and arrest you. It doesn't matter how long it'll take. He is so dogged that he will find you. And he was, you know, but again, you know, former Marine, you know, he saw a lot of crap in Vietnam. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't tolerate fools very, very well, you know, so <laughs> his, his nickname was Morose. Oh, I forgot to tell you about Jerry uh, Ben uh, Ben's nickname, Doctor. He got the, the nickname Doctor because they were at SWAT training, and uh, one of the uh, one of the other SWAT members had uh, uh, was doing some some uh, repelling, and he burned his hands on the rope. He didn't set something right, you know. So even through the rubber gloves, you know, uh, not rubber gloves, the uh, leather gloves, uh, he burned his hands. You know, uh, uh, going down the rope, you know, and, and he ripped the, the gloves off and he goes, Oh my God, my hands are hurting, my hands. And uh, at the time, I guess uh, Ben was the uh, SWAT team leader and he goes, Let me see, let me see. So he's looking at him and he goes, Let me get the first aid kit, you know. He said, I'll put some some of that first aid spray on you because he, he burned the palms of his hands, you know. So he said, Let me get the. Uh, the first aid spray, you know, so he runs over, grabs a, a can of spray uh, from the first aid kit, you know, and he comes over and he, and he, he, he sprays the, this agent's uh, hands. And as he's spraying, you know, he's got his hands in front of him, you know, like together, and, and, and he's uh, he's uh, spraying his hands, you know, and then he goes, oh, Ben, it hurts. Oh, my God, it's on fire. What are you doing? He said, oh, my God. And then Ben looks at the, at the first aid cream, and, he, and, and he, he looked at it. It's not first aid cream. It's off mosquito spray. Okay. <laughs> so the name doctor was, sar- was the, the, uh, sarcastic. Yeah, very sarcastic. So, you know, it, right, you know, so everybody called him doctor. Doctor, you know. Plus, you know, he honestly, he looked, if you looked at him, he looked like, a, like an old Georgia country doctor. They knew that based on his... His experience, he he couldn't he couldn't read he couldn't read a, a a can of spray that says off and then something that said first aid cream and it was a big laugh on the squad you know so but anyway I, I digressed a little bit you know but uh, anyway and then there was Gilarantia Gilarantia everybody called him the kid because he was the youngest guy on the uh, on the squad he was from uh, Arizona. A graduate of Arizona State, I think, you know, and uh, his, his former life was uh, a school teacher. He was a teacher in uh, in Arizona, Phoenix, and uh, got uh, hooked up with the bureau. He was uh, about five foot. He was built like Jerry, about five foot ten, five foot eleven, slender. I mean, maybe one hundred and sixty pounds, wet, you know, in his clothes, you know, and 
good guy, good agent, all enthusiastic. I mean, you know, again, we were the young bucks. You know, we we had a lot we had a lot of learning to do, and we we were enthusiastic about learning, you know, and doing. So uh, let me see who have I forgotten anybody? Manauzi, uh, he was involved, you know, uh, in, in the surveillance part of it, you know, and uh, everybody called Manauzi the the count. They they called him the count because Manauzi dressed. Uh, I, um, I don't know how you can translate this, but and I honestly don't know what it, what it means. But uh, people describe people as he dressed to the nines, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, he always, that means it looked pretty pretty good. Yeah, but he did. You know, he 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 always wore a minimum, you know, of a suit. Never, uh, maybe every now and then a sports coat. I mean, because it is Miami, you know. I mean. Sometimes you just wear a sports coat because, you know, you want to wear something dressy but not a full suit. And most of the time he wore three-piece suits. So he looked like a like the Don, you know, uh, Don Corleone or something like that. You know, so people started calling him the Count because he was always, you know, dapper, dapper looking, you know. So he had been in the Bureau at the time, you know, for quite a while. He was in um, Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. He'd been in Atlanta, Georgia for all his career, and then that uh, I don't know if you remember whether you st- were around back then, but the ten one sixty nine sixty nine yeah yeah he got he got caught up in that ten one sixty nine thing and he got transferred to Miami out of it. Well, let, let me just just for our listeners, let me just really quick say that ten one sixty nine was a decision that was made to transfer people, experienced agents who had been in a smaller office to a larger office because they felt that the larger offices needed more senior, mature agents. Yeah. So people who were settled in the smaller, medium-sized office all of, all of a sudden were pulled out and made to go to large offices. And most of the people, of course, they had you know families and children, were not happy about this decision. Yeah. Absolutely, he got caught in that ten one sixty nine thing. But you know, I don't, I didn't never consider Atlanta a small office. I mean, it's not Atlanta was a big office, you know. But anyway, somebody said, oh, you know what? Though we need to shake the tree, and he ends up in Miami. He could have ended up in someplace horrible. But let me think. Uh, I can't think of any. I think that covers everybody. You know, uh, Jerry. I mean, it's like uh, I hope. I mean, I hope it was informative. You know, uh, that doesn't cover everybody because it doesn't cover you. So let me. Let oh. me take over here for a little bit and let everybody know that in October of 1986, the International Association of Police Chiefs awarded you its National Police Officer of the Year Award for the year 1986. On December 4th, 1987, the U.S. Department of Justice recognized you as the Federal Law Enforcement Officer of the Year and awarded you the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism. Mm-hmm. And on April 10th, 1989, the FBI awarded you the FBI Medal of Valor, which I won't read all of it. I'll, I'll have it in this episode's show notes, but it says here, all those severely injured, Mr. Morales fired his shotgun one-handed to prevent the subjects from escaping, and then he charged the subjects and fatally wounded both. His heroic actions prevented further injury to his fellow agents and innocent citizens. I mean, it's an honor to have had this time and for you to have spoken to, to us 
uh, on these two episodes about this tragic event, but heroic actions that you took that day. Well, Jerry, I, I really appreciate your comments, you know, and and uh, and um, in all fairness, you know, and, and um, I mean, I, I appreciate all the the uh, recognition and stuff like that. But I always say it was a team effort. A lot of us gave, you know, everything we had, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. But Ben and Jerry, they they made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave a full measure. You know, they they gave their lives, and um, that is uh, a sacrifice that a, a lot of people don't uh, don't appreciate or sometimes don't even recognize or, or know about. If it wasn't for Ben and Jerry. Okay, I can I can honestly say, you know, cuz they they did their part. Nobody backed down, okay? They occupied the uh the perpetrators long enough for me to regroup and formulate a a, a plan to flank to in other words to come around the side of these uh, bank robbers, okay? And and they stayed in it to the end. But they are the the real heroes in, in this situation. You know, they um, in, in my mind and in my heart, they're they're, they're my heroes. To me, Ben and, and Grogan and Jerry Dove, you know, they they are the the ultimate heroes. I could not have done it without them, and I could not have done it without the the rest of the uh, members of the the C one squad. Well, we've talked now last week and this week for for more than three hours, but I can only imagine what you haven't told us about and all of that is in your book this is a true crime chronicle of the fbi miami firefight five minutes that changed the bureau and in exchange for your transparency your honesty your bravery and sharing this with us i am going to make a plea for everybody listening to go out and buy your book. In the first episode, you were telling us when you first looked into writing a book that literary agents told you that nobody would care, that the information was dated. And so I want everyone listening to go out and buy your book so that we can show that those literary agents did not know what they were talking about. We do care. <laughs> Well, I, I really appreciate that, Jerry, you know, but... Uh, well, you know what? That's the least that we owe you, you know, for your service, for your bravery, for your injuries, which I'm sure still bother you to this day. Yes. And um, I I really am. I'm, I'm selling your book. I, I really uh, would hope that your story is one that people have had a chance to listen to a little bit in the last uh, two episodes, but there's more to the story in your book, and they should listen to that part, too. Well, thank you so much, Harry. I really appreciate it. I'd like to give my guest the last word, so the floor is yours. Well, again, I just want to say uh, thank you for the opportunity, and when it's all said and done, everybody stood their ground, nobody backed down. Everybody gave blood, sweat, and tears, but Ben and Jerry gave it all gave a hundred percent i mean as a as one hundred percent as a human being can give you know and they're my heroes you like to think you know that when faced with a scenario like that you know you'll do the right thing ben and jerry did not take one step back uh, they kept moving forward they made the ultimate sacrifice wow and that's the end of part two 
At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Ed Morales. You'll find links to FBI website stories about the tragic and fatal FBI Miami shootout, one of the deadliest and most violent firefights in FBI history. You'll also find links to Hall of Honor memorials for Jerry Dove and Ben Grogan, and a list of the citations received by Ed Morales for his heroism and bravery on April 11th, 1986. Most importantly, there is a link to his book, FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau. There is so much that we were unable to get to in these two episodes. There is an exciting twist that happened while he was in the hospital that you don't want to miss learning about. And of course, we didn't get to discuss the type of weapons that the FBI carries as a result of this firefight. And of course, misconceptions about whether or not the FBI that day was outgunned. So you want to get a copy of his book. I didn't get a chance to talk to Ed this week, but I hope he still has some copies left. He is selling it from his website and there is a direct link to his website, edmorales.com in this episode's show notes. Let's show him some love by picking up a copy of his book. It's a great read. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to sign up to be a member of my reader team to keep up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.